Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today has some profound insights into how governments abrogate the rights of people to freely assemble. Mena Kiai is a Kenyan human rights lawyer and activist who serves as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Rights to Freedom of Peaceful Assembly and of Association. His career was born in opposition to an oppressive government in Kenya, and he discusses the kinds of tactics and strategies he used to advance human rights under an authoritarian government. We also discuss his role in helping to mediate during the disputed 2007 Kenya elections, which turned very violent and resulted in his life being in danger. We kick off discussing the impact of a Trump presidency on human and civic rights both around the world and, based on his experience, here in the United States. This is a great conversation, which I did actually leave feeling inspired, though these are obviously uncertain and potentially threatening times for civil liberties here in the United States. So I was grateful to learn some of the lessons imparted through Mina Kiai's career. Before we begin, though, I do want to plug the new way you can support the podcast and earn rewards in the process. I started a Patreon page, which is sort of like a Kickstarter for internet content creators. If you make a recurring monthly contribution to the podcast, I'll give you complimentary subscription to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clip service, the chance to hear about upcoming shows and have your questions posed to my guests, access to a community forum, and enough of you sign up, I will create a For Your Ears Only podcast series. Also, stickers. I will mail you a sticker. You can learn more by clicking on the Support the Show banner on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I hope you do. I want to take this to the next level during these next few months and years. And for now, here is Mena Kiai. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Given what we know from the election campaign in the U.S., given some of the statements made, some of the actions taken, I think we can rest assured that it's going to be a different different world um, starting January very different in many ways. And it's something we're not quite sure what it means, but um, there's, there's some places where, there's some things where we, we hope, uh, because, you know, the, because we, I, see, I see Donald Trump as representing uh, a wing of, of the far right and, and intolerance, the intolerance wing, if you wish, uh, in, in the, at a global level. And it's not surprising that the first people to visit him is, is the guy from UKIP in the UK, uh, Marine Le Pen seems excited. Uh, Putin seems excited. So it seems to me that we are we're going to be a different world where where 
intolerance and xenophobia and and um, closed-mindedness is going to be is going to be upped. In in my view, I think that 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 Donald Trump, in fact, is the is the jewel in the crown of the far right, fascist, xenophobic, uh, right wing groups that exist. So that means it's going to be there's going to suddenly going to be an impact, which means that those of us who are doing right, human rights who are trying to work at a progressive uh, trying to take a progressive approach to to both domestic and international problems. Those who are trying to focus on openness rather than closeness. Those of us who are trying to to make globalization have have a positive effect on the poorest of the poor, uh, and and all and be able to remedy some of the inequalities of society. Those I think we're going to have going to going to be a tough time. Um, so it's time for us, in a sense, to to retool and rethink. We strategize, yes. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's probably fair to say that historically the United States has been an exporter of the ideals of, of freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. You know, it's enshrined in, in the First Amendment to our Constitution. Uh, yet now um, you wonder, based on, on what you're saying, whether kind of the values that the United States exports or extols abroad might change or shift in any kind of fundamental way and what impact that will have on the freedom of people around the world. I mean, it's it's not so much as U.S. exporting those values. I think it's more that that people have relied and counted on the U.S. as a friend, as an ally, as they do their own domestic struggles. And when that is then closed off by an inward-looking approach mm. that is that is clearly xenophobic in its in in certain ways, that is talking about building walls, that's talking about uh, clearly an anti an Islamophobic. Uh, approach, then that means that you know we'll have to look elsewhere. We'll have to find beacons elsewhere. But I do think that actually it's not just Donald Trump. To be fair, I think that since um, the war against Iraq and and since Guantanamo Bay and 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 the and the legitimization of torture by the U.S., the U.S. as a beacon has reduced quite dramatically across the world. It's that beacon that it was in for many of us who started doing this work in in the in 80s and 90s really really faded um after after guantanamo after after you know the torture after all that stuff that happened then so it's it's kind of it's kind of like heading towards the same trend as opposed to opening up again and and i think that the challenge across the world is that is that we've got to find different beacons and different mm -hmm. examples that can now motivate people to to see, to think and believe that the world can be more inclusive the world can can be more fairer the world can be a better place for most people. Well, and, and what beacons are, are you looking towards? I mean, what else is out there? I mean, one of, I think, the enduring stories over the next few years is going to be how, you know, American global leadership is is sort of receding in, in, in a way. And, and part of that is, is, I think, just as you said, because individuals around the world who are looking for hope, who are looking for support, can probably no longer rely on the United States. So, so where else are, are you looking? I mean, I, th I think we've got. To, I think a lot of us have to look inward, for to see where those beacons and icons are. I think a lot of us have have looked at uh, before Jacob Zuma looked at South Africa as a beacon. I think that we're looking at the Scandinavian countries. We're looking at Norway and and Sweden. I mean, you know, this is not to say that there's a perfect country. Let me make it clear: there's no perfect country. I think we're looking for different th different. Um, Symbols, if you wish, that can that can show us, and and to that extent, to be honest, I think U.S. U.S. will remain important. For example, in the way it deals with civil rights, the way 
the civil rights movement as a struggle for equality, that cannot be taken away, whether it's Donald Trump, whoever is in, in power in the U.S. That is a fact of life that when we look at the 50s and the 60s, the impact of the, of the civil rights movement across the world has been phenomenal. And we know they did this in spite of the government, not because of. So this was in spite of the government. So I think that's the kind of one of the things we're going to start seeing a lot of. So right now I know there's a lot of people in different parts of the world who are taking a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of strength, if you watch, a, a lot of sucker from the Black Lives, Move, the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. which is an organic, widespread, uh, flat structure that is, that is very localized, but also very national. People are taking a lot, of, a lot, of, a lot from that. So there are other movements as well that happen. There's the movements in India, the movements in Chile, the, the fees must fall movement in mm-hmm. South Africa that's challenging, uh, Jacob Zuma. So you look around the world, the, 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 the umbrella movement of Hong Kong, you know, there's so many movements that, that, gives, mm-hmm. that give encouragement. Yes. And, and, and sort of part of, of what you study, what, what you, um, your, your work as a special rapporteur is, is, is sort of demonstrating how governments sometimes um, try to take the wind out of the sails of those movements by placing more and, and heavier restrictions on their ability to, to assemble and peaceably assemble and exercise, you know, what, what we can in the United States call, you know, our, our First Amendment rights. Um, what are, are some signs um, that a government that used to sort of afford its people these rights are starting to take it away, take these rights uh, away? I mean, this is something that, you know, a lot of liberals in the United States are currently kind of wrestling with, which is this uh, idea of at what point um, does this rhetoric uh, become reality and how do we, like, what are the, the, the early warning signs that some of the rhetoric that he's promised uh, might turn into something real and, and sort of fundamentally change um, civil society's relationship with the government? I, I, you, I think the first part, the first thing to look at is the rhetoric and what, what people in authority are saying. Are they welcoming protests? Are they welcoming dissent? Are they welcoming opposition, you know, in a peaceful opposition to, to them? That's the first sign I think you, see, you can then tell and you can then figure out where, 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 where country is going. The second thing is then look at how laws are implemented and, and whether new law, first of all, whether, whether the existing laws that, that allow for space are implemented in a way that allows for space. In the US, I think we're going to look, we're going to, many of us are going to be watching to see whether the police will return to their pre-Ferguson approach or not, given the rhetoric has gone on. So if the police return to pre-Ferguson militarized approach, then we know there's a big problem in the US. But I think the other part of it is the resistance that happens. And we look at it also in terms of how are people organizing? And I think for me as a special rapporteur in the context of freedom of assembly, I, I am very, very, I'm very keen to see how that plays out and how, how we can, in a sense, even encourage and cement more and more the rules of the game when people are peacefully protesting. Because clearly what happened in Ferguson was out of the box, was illegal. The way the police reacted was illegal under international law. Now, we have to figure out how, whether, whether the police will get emboldened and become there and therefore think that they can then go back to those old days or whether they'll be able to say, look, and, and I think some, they've been encouraging signs. I think from the protests that have happened, the police have been facilitating those protests and, and saying, quite rightfully so, that people need to express themselves. That, and it's a great way, it's the right way to do, to do so because it's, you know, the freedom of, of peaceful assembly 
is indeed a safety valve for society. But when you're really angry, really frustrated, you can go out to the streets and you can assemble and you can enmass yourselves and, and speak and, and push these things. It's such an important safety valve. That's in, and it's important to keep that safety valve going. Otherwise, then people may turn, turn, into things that, turn towards things that you don't want them to do. Um, I'd love to uh, go back and, and learn a little bit more uh, about how you became involved in this line of work. Um, you know, you're, I, we, we met briefly uh, before the election in, in October when you received a Human Rights Award from the UN Foundation and the United Nations Association. Um, but I want to turn back the clock. So, so I'm reaching you in Kenya. You are Kenyan. Uh, were you born before or, or after independence? I was born after independence. In Kenya. After independence. Okay. Uh, and what yes. kind of family were you born into? I was born in a in a my my parents were teachers so it's so it's a large family I have, I have uh, seven siblings so we grew up in a large family my parents were ordinary teachers in Kenya so there there always was an encouragement towards going to school and getting educated uh, and so that was that was part of it so I think and then in Kenya the the way the Kenya system educational system is a is a sadly is a is a is an exclusionary system. So we start off in, in, in what you guys call elementary school, first grade. We started off in my time as about 400,000 pupils in first grade. Hmm. By the time we're going to university, we're about 2,000. And that's over a period of 13 years. So it just keeps eliminating people, eliminating people as you go on with education. How, how is that? So, so, because people, like, like students fail tests and they're relegated to mm -hmm. other... Yes, mm -hmm. because we had examinations. So after the first seven years of, of, of primary school or, or elementary school, we had a national examination, which is called Certificate of Primary Education. And at the end of that examination, then quite a lot of people fell out. And those who passed went on to the next stage, which is secondary school. And we went to secondary school or high school, which was four years. And then we had another examination at the end of those four years, which we then went into high school and doing A-level. And from that A-level class, I think we must have been, in my time, we must have been about 20,000 students. Only 2,000 went to university. So we kept eliminating. And part of that is that British-based uh, British educational system, which is always excluding people. And then those who are not so-called, and I put quote marks, uh, academically oriented can then do the sciences and the trades, if you wish. Mm -hmm. So it is not a great system. But, but so, if, so if depend, a lot of it depended upon the school you went to. And I happened to go to a boarding, and, and, for, and for most of us in this country, Boarding school was was really the the, the prize mm -hmm. because when you go to boarding school for high school you had electricity and therefore you could study and you had three meals a day even if they're not great meals but you had three meals a day so boarding school was where every parent wanted their kids to go to and how and did you make it I went it? to a boys boarding school how how, how did you make it into the boarding school I mean you, were your parents teachers at that school no no they were not they were not I, I sat for the examination at the age of of twelve. And I moved to a boarding school that was more than, what, 120 miles away from where my parents lived. And I just moved out there. So we spent three months in school, a month off in holidays, three months in school, and then a month off in holidays. So at, nine months in the year we're in school. At the age of 12, did you recognize the enormity of the consequences of whether or not you had, you had passed or do well in this test? Oh, absolutely. You knew it. I mean, you knew it from the time you're a kid, from the time you, you go to, to elementary school, because you're told very clearly... Only if you go to school and the, and where you went to high school was also important. So I went to high school, which is one of the oldest schools in Kenya, oldest high schools in Kenya, started by the missionaries in 1926 and was started for 
for African students to be able to get them into teaching and into as clerks for the colonial government and as you know as as the as the as the boys if you wish for for the colonial government. So that's where I went to school. But so it's got a long history and a long history of academic excellence, to be honest. And and that's so that's once you got into that school, you're almost assured of going to university. It would it was harder to fail than not to fail. And I have to imagine that in a way, this system probably um, helped entrench inequality in the society. Right? I can't imagine that many very poor people rose up through the ranks with you. Uh, you said it sounds like you kind of had a middle class upbringing. Well, it's a, it's a, I, would say, I would say a lower middle class, rather than a middle class. <laughs> yeah. But there, yeah, it's, yes, so the school I went to was a poor, was actually was a pretty poor school. Mm-hmm. There were very few kids who were rich, who were wealthy. But because it was a good school, people used to take the best of the best boys from across the country, and they would all come into the school and and would and would be there together, and that that was helpful. So you had all kinds of people. But it's my it was really the first time when I was there that I I, I encountered and began thinking of the of the concept of inequality because I had friends who who would come to school and they couldn't afford the five dollars or six dollars that was needed for the for some fees and they would go away and have to stay out, stay home for a while and come back. And they weren't doing very well in the class because they had, they had that going in and out of, of school. I imagine you uh, went to university studying law? Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. I studied yeah. law at the University of Nairobi. What, 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 what attracted you to, to law? Well, it was, it was also one of those things, again, we didn't have many choices. <laughs> um, we, we had the university was, and we had no more, we didn't have much career guidance. So if, you know, the A-level system of, of education um, made you specialize in, in certain subjects. So if you were, if you were, if you were more science oriented or mathematically oriented, then you went into maths, physics, chemistry, biology, and ended up being an engineer or a doctor, right? And so the way we grew up, it was, the way it was seen is that therefore, if you were good at the artistic stuff, the art stuff, and I was pretty good in, in literature and economics and, um, and geography and history. So when you're good at those ones, then you end up being in, uh, you end up, the choices you had was either to go into, into law as a professional course, or you go into um, commerce, and which means it's, you know, become an accountant or a marketer yeah. into the business. So there was not much choice. So I went into law because I had no, I had no other choice. I didn't, I didn't, there, was no many, there weren't many professional courses available. So I went into law, but I wasn't quite sure what I, why, you know, I knew it was a professional course and I knew I just wanted to do it and then see where it will lead to. Yeah, I think that's like a lot of law students these days, at least in, in the United States. Um, right. I, I, I do want to, to learn. So earlier you said that it was your exposure to inequality in the school system that first opened your eyes to human rights. As a young lawyer, how did your relationship with, with human rights continue to evolve and, and what kind of experiences did you have that suggested you might pursue a career in, in human rights work? Well, when, when I went to university, again, there were a number of things. Now, there were a number of more, there were a number of more opportunities. One could, could, could intern with law firms. And then I discovered this, this organization that's in Nairobi called Kituo Chasharia, which means the Legal Advice Center. And I interned there for, 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 the, for a summer. And it was, it was really wonderful. The Legal Advice Center was, was basically run by law students with a few lawyers uh, in charge of us and a few lawyers who were going to help us. But the idea was for us to give legal advice to poor people, mm-hmm. indigenous people. And, and it was a fascinating experience. And then from there, I, I, well, I what, bumped Do, do you remember any, any sort of specific cases that you worked on 
or, or any, any of, ways that you help a people? Lot of the cases, a lot of the cases are on land and just the means of production. People not, not having land and they've been cheated of their land. There was a lot of cases as well of employment and labor where people are being fired at random. Those are the massive, those are the majority of them. The things around policing and you know, what you what we consider in America the, the political civil rights want that many other legal advice centers. These were really livelihood issues. How do I survive? I'm poor. Or people who have been living on a farm and they're squatters for years and years and they squat and there's no way out and they're dead poor. So you go visit them. So one person comes and you go and see them and visit them and see them and try and give legal advice. Then linked to that was a group called the Public Law Institute, which then again I, I interned for and I eventually worked for before I went. I, went, I left Kenya to, to go to the States mm-hmm. uh, for, 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 for my grad school. I have and to- that was... Mm-hmm. I just uh, just just staying in Kenya for a second. I have to imagine this, this is what during during the the Moy era. Yes. So it was in the in eighties. Yes. So so it's not necessarily an era known for a robust civil society. Uh, movement. Not at all. It was, it was very not much sort of a, a restrictive kind of of time. Did you ever sort of feel uh, personally sort of the the weight of restrictions on your own civil liberties oh, or yes. your own ability? Oh, oh yes, you felt that every day. I mean, we. We, we would not talk. Whenever we talked, we talked. We would talk in whispers. You were very nervous about people around you who you didn't know, who may be watching you or listening to you. When you would start working with a legal advice center, where you're offering advice to poor people, you know there are people, there are state agents around who are trying to see where it goes. Because a lot of the problems in this country have political linkages. The reason why people, part of the reason why people are poor is political manipulation. So you find, and then. And then I was part of, I assisted in a case, an inquest uh, into the death of, of a person who, who, um, who had been tortured by police. And going to the court with my, with my, with my senior, my lawyer, my senior then, was very intimidating. So you always felt nervous about where it's going and how it's going. So Kenya was, so the only forms of human rights, if you wish, that were permitted was legal advice center where you give, you give advice, legal advice to indigent people. And then you had the Public Law Institute, which was then trying to use the courts to be able to open up space on some issues. But even that was you're always very sensitive, very, very quiet and very, very careful. At the same time as that's going on, there was an underground movement of, of, of dissent going on. And that was pretty uh, interesting because they were doing a lot of pamphleteering and, and a lot of, um, of literature was being circulated at night and you'd wake up and find you know, a lot of stuff. A lot of oppositional dissent sent out in secret, anonymously written. And those kinds of things were, we were very clear we did not know what's going on in the country. We were very clear that our, our news was censored. We were very clear we couldn't talk. We were very clear as well that you couldn't even organize openly because you're going to get the full wrath of the state. So those who then, those who were braver and more courageous, if I may, went, and went to the underground movement and began organizing there. And then those of us who, who were kind of trying to see how you could use this were then heading out into the human rights, the human rights movement, if you wish. Mm-hmm. Trying to sort of reform the system uh, by having like a foot in both worlds? Well, in, in a sense, it is, it's, it's reform, yes, but also was, was focused on the global change. And you're trying to see what can you do that can make sense and keep, and keep you alive as well, to be honest. And the truth, because because you know I, I'm no I'm no I'm no fan of 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 matter at all. I don't think that matter is, is the way to go. I think that that's dangerous, and I think sometimes you lose out more. And I'd seen 
people I knew had been, who I'd been talking with and I'd been friends with who would be jailed very easily. And that seemed to lose their life. So again, just making an assessment of, of things, I said, I saw that you're better off when you're educated and, are, and can be independent than when you are young and, and inexperienced and going in full throttle. So you've got to play it carefully to see where, where can you make the most difference. Now, human rights is often seen by people uh, as, as an end in itself. I see, I see human rights as a means. It's one of the tools we use to be able to get social justice, to get social change, to get this whole inequality, to deal with poverty, to deal with the indignities of life that, that, are, that, that are meted out to us. So as far as I'm concerned, you can be quite revolutionary using human rights. And I think that, I think we've got to admit that, that Martin Luther King was revolutionary in his, in his stand using civil rights. So that exposure then helps as well for, for helps to define and, and see where the, where the parameters are and how you can work within it. Um, so you mentioned earlier that, that you went to the United States for graduate school. Did you go, was that to Harvard Law? Is that right? Yes. Yes. To Harvard Law. When, when did you uh, head over there? I went there in 88, 1988. And, um, I went accidentally, actually. Was, um, I like to say accidentally because it was a, it's an interesting story, if I may. Do you mind yeah, if I Please, no, story? I love stories. <clears throat> so here I am. I'm working in this for the Public Law Institute. My, my senior, the head of Public Law Institute, was a guy called Okombaka, and he had studied at Harvard Law and had done, had done a doctorate at Harvard Law, had done a, you know, the, doctor, the postgraduate doctorate. And, and he said to me, you know, look, you, you need to go and study. It's, you you will, you will collapse. This country is, this country will finish you if you're here now. So please apply. So I applied and I sent an application. I wrote it down. In those days, we didn't, I didn't even know how to type, to be honest. So I just sent it by hand, right? A handwritten, a handwritten application. They came back to me and says, yes, you are now admitted and we're giving you $5,000 as, as your, as your, as, as partial scholarship. So I wrote back and said, you can't give me $5,000. I mean, I look at the total cost. It's 25,000. I can't afford. I can't afford, this doesn't help me. So they came back and said, okay, we'll give you tuition. Now you raised the other, tuition then was about 12,500. So I said, raise the other one. And I literally, I swear to God, I walked around Nairobi, going to office to office, lawyer to lawyer. I ended up, I wrote a letter to Ford Foundation, asked them for a scholarship. They sent me back a cyclostyle form letter. I went back and said, you can't send me a cyclostyle letter like this. You, you have to meet, you don't know who I am, you know. This is just a form letter. And I met somebody who was wonderful, a guy called Sally Booker, an American guy there. We sat and talked. And Sally said, okay, we'll help you. And, and Ford Foundation paid the rest of my, of, of my, of my expenses. And I, and I went to Harvard. And there um, it is. So uh, I'm indebted to Ford Foundation in many ways. Now, while at Harvard at that time, did you ever have any interaction or did you overlap with you know, the other kind of famous Kenyan guy who went to Harvard uh-huh. around that time? <laughs> oh yes, we did. Indeed, we did. Because he came in, he came in eighty in eighty eight as well as a as a first year, and so I left, I left, and I left him there. Did you but, have any um, interactions with him back then? Oh yes, yes, yes. We, what was yes. Do, what do you yes, recall from that? Um, uh, Mr. Barack Obama was was a magnet. He had enormous charisma even then, and he was he was he was a listener. And most of my interactions with him actually were in the smoking room at Harvard Law. And Harvard Law has had a had an under an, an basement uh, had a because of the winter you have to go through basements and underground for when you're moving around. So underground there there was a smoking room and that's where we met up quite a lot of times because 
he was an avid smoker then and, and so was I, because it was the revolutionary then. The revolution, revolutionary people always smoked, you know, you had to. <laughs> and <laughs> so we would meet there and we would talk and he was very inquisitive, he was very curious about Kenya, curious about Africa, curious about how life was. Uh, he was a listener more than anything else, but he was, he was somebody you could not ignore. You could not ignore him. Um, and yeah, and, and I remember part of the discussions we had with him was him talking about how his goal was to go into politics. And I was, you know, I said, politics is so, from my, where I sit in Kenya, politics is dirty. It can't give you change. People just join the system. And he says, no. So he explained to me how politics works in America and all that stuff. And he says that his his goal was to be a senator. At that point, in this is 1988-89, there was the, there was no black senator, if you remember, mm-hmm. and there was a time when it seemed impossible to be, to get to senate to become a senator. That changed, of course, in 1992 with the, with the election of Carol Mosley Brown. Mosley Brown, also in, from Illinois, yeah, yes, in Illinois, mm-hmm. and she got elected as a black as a black woman senator. So that was the first time. But in those days, it seemed like one of those. Wow, you want to be a senator? My goodness, that's a big dream. And of course, as you see, he moved on from senator to president. Did you have you? Did you keep in touch with him over the years? Not much, not much. He came. He came to Kenya in two thousand and six as mm-hmm. a senator. Yeah, and we met a we met a couple of times. So we had a we had a meet I had a meeting with we had a meeting with a group of people, and I met him alone as well. And yeah, and he's he's yeah he was always he's always ahead. I mean, he's always very clear. He's a very personable person. But my, my sense of Barack Obama is that he is, is an introvert who has made himself into an extrovert for the purposes of politics, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is a remarkable thing. I got the sense then, and I still do even now when I look and read about him, that Barack Obama is more comfortable with small groups than with large crowds, that he's professorial, and that's yeah. the big thing. Yeah, which, which is fascinating for someone who's such a skilled orator. In, in his professional, while he was president, and in any of your professional capacities, did you do anything? Did you work together at all? Did you have any sort of opportunities to meet while he was president, and, and you uh, were running your, your NGO or special repertoire? Well, we met. We met in 2013 mm-hmm. uh, in New York. He he convened um, uh, uh, he convened a side event to look at civil society space globally. Yeah. Okay, and I was invited on that. I was invited to that. So we had a chance to to have a to have a chat or so, but a, sh- a short chat. I saw him as well during the campaign. Actually, I was in the U.S. in 2008 mm-hmm. when he was campaigning at first, and and for me that was a great moment just to. So I bumped I because you know it's very hard when you pick up the phone and try and call. You get all these gatekeepers who never let you through. So so you realize because you're thinking, you know, you're an African guy. Why do you want to see him? <laughs> of course, that's the time. That's the time as well. You remember in the in the U.S. when Obama was kind of cautious about being seen as too close to Africa because that yeah. was the, the mythology. So anyway, so we maneuvered. We, had, we were making a film as well, so with my colleagues. So we maneuvered ourselves to come to a place where we, we bumped into him. And what was remarkable is that he came down the line. I was in the line. He saw me. And the first thing he said was, Habariyako in Swahili, which means, how are you? you know, and, <laughs> and he gave me a hug. And yeah, so it was nice. And then in, and the next, second time I've seen him then was, in New York in 2013. All right. So, um, so, so you're at Harvard Law School, um, you know, studying obviously with like you know the, the giants of, of the American legal system. W- did you decide while you were at Harvard that you wanted to then spend your career in in Kenya? What was your what were you thinking at the time in terms of like how you wanted to pursue your your career? 
I was clear that I wanted to be in Kenya. I wanted to do work in Kenya because that's where the, that's where the, the need was largely. But I was also clear that I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the, the, I didn't have the experience, nor did I have the understanding to do that properly. And I needed to expand. So when I left Harvard, actually, I went to a, a group called Trans-Africa Forum, which is an anti-apartheid group, an African-American anti-apartheid group that was quite, quite effective in, in pushing sanctions, in also building a grassroots movement across the U.S., especially, especially around black community and pushing for that, which was a wonderful experience in so many ways. It, it made me. And then, so I, and then so that, that was useful for me to understand. And I've got to say again, Ford Foundation was very useful in that because they, they gave me my first year salary. They said they, they thought it, it's important that I get some experience in the U.S. So they paid for my first year salary at, for, at um, Trans-Africa Forum. Then I, got, then I got employed after that. So they had a plan so for was, you all along. The They're like, let's train up this guy and Ooh. then deploy him as a human rights, uh, uh, you know, vanguard human rights activist. You know, you know, there's something to be said about educating people. And, and there's something to be said about a process that gets people and educates them and exposes them. I would say out of every 10 that, uh, are, that go through that process, maybe, may, may, maybe three to four will, will really live up to what you want them to live up to. And, and I'm really grateful to Ford Foundation. I really am. I mean, I think they, they were nice to me. They, were, they, they encouraged me. They let me be. They let me choose my way and then they would support it. So, so, I'm, so Ford Foundation is, has been a great, has been a great, um, a great, pre, has, a, has been a great leader in this in terms of de, of of individual development, which I think is is crucial. So yeah, so I would say that, and yeah, and so Ford, and then I did that, I did that, and when I was in Trans Africa, it's, it became clear to me now that Mandela was released in 1990, and apartheid was clearly on its way on its way out. That I needed now to go back, but also, but what actually changed it most was that in 1991, uh, Kenya then permitted multi-partyism, mm-hmm. which had been, it had been a, it's been a legal one-party state up until December 1991. And clearly there was now space. So, so that was, so, so that decree, I suppose, by, by Moy, um, created the, the space for a civil society that you think was really what, what enabled you to come back and, and start, you know, pursuing, you know, your, your civic causes in the country? Yes, it just, it said to me that, it's worth a try. Let's try it now. We know it won't be because there's opposition parties allowed. Surely they can't be targeting uh, civil society, human rights people. But it was interesting as well when, we, when, when, I, when, when we were, I was talking to people about what to do and how to do it. I, we came up with a name called the Kenya Human Rights Commission. And the first everybody I talked to in Kenya said, you know, it's OK. You can form an organization, but don't have the word name human rights in it. It will make it will make more upset. It will. It will land you in trouble. But, you know, we thought, you know, Moi's got so much on his head right now, so much in his, on his hands. He's got oppositional parties, he's got all this stuff going. Let's, let's, let's take a gamble. Let's keep with it and see what happens. And, and, and it turns out that, yes, there was a lot of discomfort. There was a lot of uh, apprehension. But it worked out at the end of the day. It worked out and we were, made, were able to start the Kenya Human Rights Commission. I like to say, you know, people have, often in, in this world of ours of, of civil society, people like to call, talk about briefcase NGOs, as uh, NGOs are just running out of a briefcase. I'm happy to say that Kenya Human Rights Commission was a briefcase NGO. I, had, I literally had no office. I had no funding, nothing. 
And we started off in 1992, September. And when I left in 1998, September, the budget for, for the Kenya Human Rights Commission was a million dollars, you know, and was now a strong institution. So, so what, I'm very proud of that. What did you do? What, what kind of cases did you take on? Or, or what kind of work did you pursue as, as the, you were the, the walking Kenya Human Rights Commission? <laughs> well, 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 the big part of what we're doing, first of all, was documentation. We just needed to document and put a record of what's going on. So, so, so we, what kind we of things were, were going we were, on at, at the time? It was everything. It was, all rights were being abused. Everything. Moy was, Moy was the master of abusing rights. Moy did not believe in rights. So whether it is freedom of expression that was being curtailed, freedom of association, freedom of assembly, academic freedom, torture was going on mercilessly in the country. Killings by the police were going on. The poor people were being beaten up and starved almost, almost, almost deliberately by the state. So what we did was, was, was say, okay, we need a body of research and documentation that can then lead to things. So our first bit of work really was documenting. And we created this thing we call the quarterly repression report. So every quarter we release a report with figures and just showing how, how much abuse was going on. But then we moved from that as well. We moved into now forms of activism and forms of protest. And in 1995, we began organizing protests. We had a campaign against police killings. And it was innovative because, you know, the police then and still now have this habit of just shooting people whenever they feel like and then calling them robbers and calling them thugs and criminals. And they just do it and they get away with it. So he said, this is enough is enough. Our police need to obey the rule of law. It's clear what the law says. So we went as a campaign and we had a family of one of the people who was shot. And this, and they said, you know, we are tired of being killed. So, so we then, so the first march we did was marching with a coffin of the dead man and taking it to the police headquarters. And when we came in, there was a whole, there was a whole um, battalion, if you wish, of police in total riot gear. And then I was, I was holding the coffin as part of the people holding the coffin. And as we were walking in, I was shocked beyond belief. The police parted. They parted the waters. They were so scared of a dead body and so scared of coffins. So we took the coffin and dumped it in the police headquarters and said, you kill the man, you bury him. You know, it's your responsibility. And we went back and forth. So we did a campaign around police killings. So, so then we... I mean, this, this is kind of fascinating to me because earlier you said when, when you're in, in law school in Kenya that, that martyrdom really wasn't for, for you. Yet what you're doing yeah. now is, is very much putting your, yourself and it probably sounds like your, your, your physical safety on the line. Yes. So what, yes. what changed intellectually or psychologically or emotionally for you? <laughs> well, you know, martyrdom, I mean, let me say this. Even now, it's not, it's not my thing. I am very careful and I take calculated risks. But the point was, we, we knew the police were, un, were, unused, were not used to protest with dead bodies, with coffins. So they were uncomfortable. There's a whole thing in this country and many African countries about sensitivity to, towards dead people. And they just don't feel comfortable. So when you do that, then you, you're likely not to be beaten up. But that said, I have been in many protests in this country where been, we have been beaten up by the police like crazy. Tear gas thrown at us batons and being beaten with, you know, mercilessly being beaten. But so you work, you find a way to work around it, I think. And so after, after the police come, campaign against police killings, which wasn't very successful, except in terms of raising awareness that the police were thugs in this country, we then moved to a campaign for constitutional reform, which is a, which is a broader campaign. Because, you know, we said, look, we, we have had elections in this country. Elections aren't bringing us change. You know, Moy is still in power. It's not about Moy. It's about the legal structure 
in this country. That it's so that the legal structure actually allows a dictatorship in the country. So we've got to change the legal structure and let's change the constitution. So we began a series of protests, weekly protests in the country. And that was tough because you would go to the protest thinking, I don't know whether I'll leave, I'll live, I'll leave the protest alive in, in a coffin or in, in, a, in a wheelchair or something, you know. But we went and did it. But you also learn how to, you learn very quickly how to anticipate and how to protect yourself as much as you can through that, those things. Um, at, at eventually, it seems that the constitutional reform was successful. Moy, you know, there have been multi-party elections in, in Kenya. Um, in the last few minutes, I'd love to learn a bit about your experience in the 2007 uh, elections, which I know is obviously a very formative moment in sort of modern Kenyan political history. Um, and, and I'm interesting to learn how you sort of experienced this this moment now at this point probably assumingly as, as like a, one of the top human rights leaders in in the country that was a that was a moment of uh, of shock you know i had actually i was i was then very much in the media in this country and i kept warning uh, the country through television through writing through radio that we've got to be careful where we go how we do the elections it was clear there was quite a there was quite a lot of 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 um, of uh, opposition, if you wish, to the government then of Moi Kibaki, and that he had ethnicized it, and the ethnic tensions were really high. So I kept saying, "Look, we've got to do a good election." Then Kibaki did a fundamental mistake, which was that he he replaced the outgoing election commissioners. Kenya Kenya's elections are run by what they call an electoral management board, electoral commission. Mm -hmm. So unlike the U.S., it's done nationally. So he replaced, the people who were retiring were replaced, but Kibaki chose all the people who were coming in. And that was a big mistake because then it's easy to say that the election is stolen. And, so, and then we went into the election, and it was clear the election was stolen. So the, here, here was Kibaki far back, far behind the opposition, and then all of a sudden, once they've seen where the figures are, all these other results came in and turned out that constituencies, areas that were, that were pro-Kibaki were voting 120%, 150% turnout. Hmm. It doesn't happen. Yeah. So, so there was going bound to be anger. What we did not anticipate was how it would be, how, how the what the reaction would be. So when the opposition said they're not going to bother with a legal challenge, then in a sense, people went, were, went to the streets. And the police, in their stupidity, where instead of allowing, and I remember having a, a, a discussion actually with the minister in charge of police. Again, police is, is centralized in Kenya. I had a discussion with the minister of police and said, look, whichever way this election goes, please allow people to vent. Allow them to come on the streets. Allow them to vent. It's too important not to. And he dismissed me and said, no, no, no. We can't allow recklessness. We can't allow this. If people come on the streets, we will show them that there is a government. And so the police made things worse. When people came on the streets, they began shooting them. So, but rather than that intimidating people, more and more came. And then, of course, anarchy spreads. So it became anarchical. Then we began hearing of, of, of people being killed in different in parts of the country in, in, in the Rift Valley, which is a multi in some which is a multi in multi ethnic areas where supporters of Kibaki were now being killed. And they're being killed seriously. And we, I remember coming out and saying, You've got to stop this Kibaki. You've got to show some sign. You've got to you've got to show You've got to show, first of all, there's, you know, so you've got to show that this is not, this is about elections. And so if you deal with that problem, 
a lot of these things will go. You've got to concede that the elections were were flawed. You've got to concede that you could, you've got to be able to push, push pull back the pull back the stop the killings that are happening of your own supporters. I don't think I've ever seen in my life where in a situation where supporters of the people in power are the victims. But there were the victims mm-hmm. in parts because there are like minority and, communities. Uh, uh, there are ethnic minorities in parts yes. of the country, uh, and yes, and, there were. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so, so, so there was like an amazing. ethnic dimension to the conflict in certain parts of the country. It's a political dimension because mm-hmm. because our politics is ethnic, so it was mostly political rather than ethnic. Did, but the, what was amazing was that the, the state did not push out its its security forces to stop that, and that baffled me. So we then formed this this coalition which called Kenyans for Peace through Truth and Justice. Because we, we were clear that you could not get peace unless you had truth and you had justice. And by so we were we were very active around the mediation, we were very active around calling for Kenyans to stop fighting and, and stop the violence. And there was there was a lot of killings by now Kibaki's supporters then also going back and killing people who had not even killed them and they call them revenge attacks and doing really horrible, brutal things. In the, in the whole context. So then there are no angels within that, within that time of the country. In, in this, there are no angels. In, in this period of, of volatility and, and, and violence, and, and you're obviously a pretty prominent person, you're a media figure, was your physical safety ever compromised or ever threatened? Oh, dramatically, my friend. Dramatically. What happened? Was, I got serious threats, serious threats to my life. I um, investigated it. I had, I had by that time a lot of contacts in the, sec- in the security forces. I, w- I had made a lot of friends in a, I, when I was chairman of the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights, which is the, uh, a, uh, an independent state body. I'd made a lot of friends in security and began telling me that you're in trouble. You're, you're, you're going to be killed. And so more in the, I investigated that a number of times and it was very clear that, they, that the state wanted to kill me rather than the people. The state wanted to kill me. So I, what we did, what I did then was devise a system where I would, I would be, I, I, I stopped, I stopped, I didn't have a routine. I had no routine. I stopped every routine. I would not go alone anywhere. But the most important thing was that I developed a system where I would be in and out of the country at random. So, and and I have got to say that that my my colleagues, my friends in the diplomatic community were very supportive. So. So I would be in the country, do a press conference, and literally within three hours, I'm on a plane to Paris. And I spend a week in Paris doing stuff. I come back. And then I, I'm in Kenya for about two weeks. Then I take another plane. I'm off in the U.S. Or I'm off to the U.K. I'm off to other places. So that, that back and forth really saved my life. Mm-hmm. But it also was, it was the most stressful time I've ever been through in my life. Because it, there was no, because once... Once, uh, once you can see the evidence of how they want to kill you, and and the way, in fact, I even knew how they wanted to kill me, then it become it becomes very what, stressful. How, like, what that you knew, like the, the mechanism by which they would assassinate you. The methodology was clear. They were going to try and catch me on uh, in traffic and shoot me. So they were going to catch because there's a lot of jams, traffic jams in Kenya. Like, so they're going to tr- catch me on the road and just take me. So I stopped going out at night. I was. I was always indoors. By the time dusk came, I'm indoors. I began sleeping in different places. I wouldn't sleep in the same place all the time. So, so give them, just throw them off guard. When I'm when I was in a car and I've got a driver in there, I would tell the driver drive. And then he asked me where. I said, "Don't worry, I'll tell you." I wouldn't even tell the driver where I'm going. 
So we come to a junction and say, turn left here. We go somewhere, turn right. So he doesn't know where I'm going at all. So your life becomes very, very scary, very tentative. How do you cope I'm, with that I'm, kind of stress? My friend, you, you just get more and more stressed. It's just, it's, uh, there's, there's get, nothing to do. It's very stressful. It's, I mean, so once, once, the, once there was an agreement, there was some kind of, of, of settlement to the, to the crisis, and my, and my term at the National Commission ended, I left. And I left the country, and I went actually to the U.S. to try and get my, my head around again and focus on, uh, focus on good things, positive things, which at that time was the Obama election was, <laughs> was the big thing. It was a positive thing. It was useful. And it was, I needed to get away from Kenya. And I, I've, got, I've got to say, I'm, I have, I've, been, I've been really privileged in terms of the fact that I have had options. Every single time when there's been trouble, I've been able to get out of the country and go somewhere. And that's something I don't take very lightly. I, I appreciate that. And it's something that if you're doing this work, because as I said, I don't believe in martyrdom. I, I, I believe in what I do. And if I have to die doing what I am doing, then so be it. But I will do whatever I can not to be a martyr. Whatever I can. Mena, okay. Kai, thank you so much for, for your time. This was, this was fascinating. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. And, you know, I knew he was going to be a good speaker, a good episode. I saw him give a short speech accepting a reward conferred by the United Nations Association and the United Nations Foundation, the Leo Nevis Human Rights Award, which he won in October. And I knew that I had to track him down and have him on the podcast. And I'm glad I did. I found that actually, as I said earlier, inspiring. Um, Please do be a contributor, a patron of this show and earn fantastic rewards in the process. I just actually sent my first email out to my new patrons, uh, suggesting or asking them to suggest to me topics I should cover Uh, people I should interview, questions I suggest, and just in general, letting me know what's on their mind. So go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, click on the support the show link, or if you're listening to this in the app, which by the way is free, and by free, I mean costs me money, but not you, um, go uh, click on on the link and also on iTunes. Just uh, You can click on, on the link I've provided in the iTunes description page. Anyway, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for all the notes I've, I've received over the last uh, few weeks. As I said earlier, after my last uh, kind of episode in which I, it was me talking to the, the microphone for, for 10 minutes about what's going on in the world and how we can take this podcast forward, I've received such gratifying notes from you all. So, so just thank you. Thank you for doing what you do and I will keep doing what I do and we will get through this and we will grow and we will learn together. See you next time. Bye.